Pamela Wilson has a whole like sentence for each painting that she's done. Um, yeah, sometimes it's, it's, uh, I talked to a friend, uh, Dan McCaw, we were joking, like, what if you just made up a title that has nothing to do with the painting, but it was just a random word, you know, yeah. <laughs> just to throw people off and like, oh, what does that mean, you know, make it, make them really try to think about it, so. Yeah, the uh, David Bowie approach. <laughs> yeah, there you go, there you go, yeah. Exactly. Um, Eva Rod in Norway again says, Hi Karen, what's your favorite part of creating a painting? Are there some parts of the process that you look that you look particularly forward to? It could be the mo the the Yeah. Gosh, every painting is different. And if it's a you know, it could be the just the light hitting the figure, the light hitting the face, the light hitting the object. That's, you know, I just like find that and see what's compelling about it. And then that drives me. Yeah. You know, how to make that light, how to make that thing or that person glow in a way, I guess, you know, and just really have that deep, um, dark, Parts and then the, the light that's really kind of singular, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Moira Sullivan here in Ireland says, Hi, Karen. Would love you to talk a bit about painting small. Um, mm -hmm. You do it so beautifully, each painting like a beautiful jewel. Do you oh. feel that they pack a greater punch small, or is it a practical decision? Both. It depends on on the the subject. Um, but you know, learning how to paint big. Um, you know, you want to keep the same aesthetic, the same approach. So, like, you know, if you have a small painting with smaller brushes, and you want that to be a large scale painting. You just use bigger brushes to achieve the same type of brush stroke, you know. So, so, um, but yeah, I mean, I like painting small too. I like, you know, I'm, I'm more hesitant to paint big. It's not my comfort zone yet. Um, but I do want to paint some bigger paintings. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, uh, I can get through them faster, you know, it's sort of like, oh, again, you know, when you're stuck in the middle of a painting and you don't have much time and you really, you just want to do something to get your mind off, you know, I think it has a lot to do with my, my emotional well-being is if I don't paint, I get a little fussy or sensitive, you know, and so it's sort of like I need it's almost like a dopamine hit, you know, it's like I just need to go and put some painting down, you know, put a painting down, small, something I can do in a few hours or half a day or something just to fortify myself. So I guess it's practical, it's emotional, and it's a shorter amount of time. Yeah. 
and and it fits on people's walls easier than the large ones. So, you know. Yeah. 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 Um, Julian Davis on Patreon. Thanks for the tea, Julian. And Julian's also a former podcast guest, episode 167, if you're looking for us. And he says, I'm new to your work. I like the way your paintings seem worked, even sculpted, rather than quickly resolved. A bit like a th- bit like Thomas Eakins. The process Ooh. gives the port... I know, nice, <laughs> nice comparison. Yeah. The process gives the portraits a lot of character and feeling. Is a certain amount of reworking your intent? And ha- have you become wary of getting a likeness in Verticomus too soon? Great stuff. Hmm. Uh, so the working, wait, so, hang on. Um, There's a certain amount of reworking your intent. It depends on what needs to be addressed. I don't intend to rework too much, um, but I'm just adding to the layers. Um, yeah. And and so, yeah, I le- sort of like leaving, uh, you know, your eyes able to move around and uh, find those notes of information. And then, it, you know, it's not everything is not everything is spelled out. So that, I like that. And it, it creates an atmosphere for me. Um, and, um, again, I mean, I, that's just the way I paint. It's not the way to paint. It's just a way to paint and a way to see and the visual language of art, what, what drives you. So, um, you know, so I'm, I'm looking for what are the notes of information that are really compelling? I'm going to, you know, what's that light, that light, you know, in the background that creates a silhouette on part of it. Um, part of the figure, part of the the portrait, um, the light that's on the wrist, you know, or the side of the hand, you know, that to me is like, what's the immediate thing that I see when I look at the image that I want to paint? Yes. You know, it's sort of capitalizing on that, and then everything else kind of falls into place, you know, yeah. or the pattern that's happening. Do you need to fill in? every single detail of the pattern or can you leave some of it that kind of thing yeah and then the second question and have you become wary of getting a likeness too soon um no i you know i think um kind of coining the phrase of like finding the anchors which i i originally heard from uh rose franson which um, when I block in, you know, you have your cast shadows, you know, finding those areas, you know, the, the shadow shapes and trying to get those in the right place should help the likeness, uh, start or the start of the creation of the likeness is getting those shadows in the right place. And then you start going in and getting into more detailed and, and stuff like that. But, um, I do, you know, I like the idea of finding the likeness as much as possible, but not going into so much detail that you, you know, it, 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 for, I'm just not comfortable with that much detail. Yeah. 
and and again, I mean, you could have like an abstract artist thinking that I'm like a hyper realist compared to what they do. So it's sort of like, well, what's your what's your version of detail versus you know loose quality? You know. Yeah. 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 Uh, Benjamin Lesser again says, I've noticed a wonderful masculine quality to your male portraits, different than in your female portraits. Is this a conscious choice, and how much do gender roles play in your style choices? Um, masculinity in the feminine. Um, I do feel like that I have a few paintings that kind of you know, the boxer paintings, the kickboxer um, model who I've painted before. And uh, so I did two paintings, one called um, Queen and one called Contender. So the, con and it's one person, she's a kickboxer and uh, or some sort of like, um, she does, I, I don't know what it's called, but it's, it's kickboxing with boxing gloves and so I have a painting I did of her with her in the stance of the boxing stance and then one painting of her with this white feather boa and she's just sitting there you know and so the boxing is the queen she's called Gundam Queen she calls herself Gundam Queen on um, social media so and then the contender is in the you know in in the feather boa looking all elegant so I wanted to kind of play on words with that, but I feel like I add some, I, I guess it depends on the context of the gender roles versus strength. Is that, I, I don't really know kind of the question or how to answer it. I don't think gender really plays, I don't have like a gender outlook of my paintings. It's just more of capturing that person yeah. in my, you know, in my props and such, you know, so. Yeah. 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 So you're not consciously going, okay, I'm painting a man, so that's a different set of levers get moved on the inside and now I'm painting a woman right. to change gear for that. It's more right. just the same. It's you're just painting, yeah. painting who you see and as part of the whole. Yeah. Approach, yeah. I, I would say that, like, I don't have any men wearing a negligee type or, you know, something feminine in that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or something soft, maybe. I'm more of just trying to capture who they are, you know, because the people that I paint, I end up knowing. You know, we end up becoming friends. And so it's sort of like I capture them at their essence. Yes. And, uh, but I have no, you know, um, I have no specification or anything, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Galen uh, Ribiera again says, Karen, huge congratulations on being a finalist in this year's Portrait Society of America competition, which seems long overdue. Would you talk about your journey to becoming a finalist? Um, I don't know. I don't know how that works. Uh, I guess you just, you, you try to get, I would say, you try to get the best paintings or the most, okay, now I have to really think. Uh, 
the paintings I select are personal to me, if that means anything. Um, so it's not a commissioned portrait. For example, I did a, um, a painting of my mother as well. Uh, uh, those kinds of things you want to just uh, find you want the home runner type painting that you feel confident in to submit to uh, certain uh, competitions um, so like something I just slapped down that that I didn't really feel was amazing I'm not going to submit that you know you want to you want to get the ones that you really worked hard and you really um uh and and I've I have submitted a lot <laughs> to over the years so this is the first time and you can't um it, it just doesn't happen automatically um but my thing is is that I whether I make it in or not I'm proud of the work so you you can't be there's there's so many great artists out there that I'm like I'm always blown away by and um so you you're you're in a pool of these people that you're just admiring and you feel honored to be a part of this um but uh but at the same time you shouldn't base your achievements by the awards you get or don't get yeah. you know like i've i've had paintings that i've submitted that i thought for sure would get in they didn't get in and i don't think of them any less and i don't think that um i should paint better you know it's yeah. just it just happens and if you get in that mindset that you're only painting to get into a competition then you know it's sort of like reassess you have to reassess why you're really doing this you know I do paint I paint because I can't live without painting you know it's not because I mean I, I know that like I've heard about a friend of mine had a Jennifer Balkan actually she had a student long time ago that says well how do I become famous Oh, it's like, well, I don't know what that means, you know. <laughs> TikTok's so, very good for that, isn't it? <laughs> there you go. But TikTok wasn't around back then, so maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, I, I don't, I got nothing. I don't know what that means, so. Yeah. But no, don't, I, you know, don't, don't get discouraged. Don't think less about your work because you didn't get into something, you know. Um you just be you and keep going and, and enjoy what you do. That's what what will make the difference for you. I'm honored that I got in. Don't be wrong, uh, you know, but uh, but I I'm proud of the work, regardless, and I'm honored that I got in. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Uh, Amanda Lee Jones in Austin says. What haven't you painted yet that you'd like to paint? Um, I want to paint figures outside in the landscape. You want to come okay. with me, Amanda? 
let's get a get a model and go outside into some private area and, and paint figures in the landscape. That's what I'd love to do. I again, I I'm I'm gonna paint my aunt. I'm gonna paint more paintings of her, um, and uh, because she is such a a great muse, I wanted her to be at the Portrait Society so that she could be a model for the face off. Um, she would have been amazing, and so I'm going to paint more of her because I need to emotionally. Um, I and so yeah, um, I I'm driven by my emotions. Yeah, I think you know, as we all are. Yeah. So. Igor Christic again in Serbia says, Karen, love your work. I'd love to hear how you deal with um, art block or artist block. Um, it depends on what you're trying to paint, but again, it sort of goes to that, like, I'm stuck on this painting. I can't de deal with it right now. I'm just going to scratch something. You know, I'm just going to do a small one and put some you know, find if you don't have an image of a person or you could get like a weird trinket in your house, put a light on it and um, paint it without overthinking it and without making an intention for it to be anything. Just paint it, put a brush to some sort of canvas and it may not be a masterpiece, but you're, you're, or it could be like a little gem, you know, make it and then that kind of resets you, I think. Yeah. You need it. It's sort of the artist block is sort of can be, you know, is that par par uh, paralysis. You have to just find a thing to paint. Find, find, um, I mean, anything. You could, people paint the weirdest things now and it is beautiful. You know, you have that gnome behind you <laughs> that I keep looking at. <laughs> he would be a great subject. <laughs> okay, I'll take a picture of him later and send it through. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I think I think just reset yourself if you're getting stuck, and just do it, and listen to a podcast while you're doing it. Don't overthink it. Just. Paint from your right brain and let the left brain leave the house. Very good. Um, so you mentioned um, the Atelier Dojo. Mm -hmm. Was that the first bit of teaching that you did, or were you teaching before that, before you set that up? Um, I started painting or teaching years before that. Um, I had... Uh, I had been asked to teach for years, and I had small kids, and frankly, I didn't feel confident enough to teach. And then at one point, I decided I need to learn how to teach. It wasn't that I could paint. I just don't know how to communicate what I'm doing. And so um, I just needed to learn how to – I had to visualize. If I had a room full of children, how would I best describe how I do what I do? So that's kind of, and, and I decided that if I don't start now, the offers are going to stop 
coming. So it's sort of that part of me that's like, I just want to hide in my cave. And then the other side says, nope, you can't. This is now <laughs> your your world. You can't be in a cave. So, yeah. And then uh, setting up the Ateria Dojo, mm-hmm. that was, how has that been for you? It's been great. It's been really great. It's gone through a lot of changes. Um, but it's uh, me, Denise Fulton, and uh, Jennifer Balkin. And originally we had Karen Maness on board, but she's got such a huge, uh, she's got a, um, she teaches full time at the university and she is uh, working on uh, land, uh, backdrop painting for movies and such. And she wrote a book. And so she had her hands full as well as having small kids. So, so now it's just me, um, Jennifer and Denise, but we used to paint together and Denise Fulton, who's an artist, but she has a corporate background. And, um, when we started painting together, it's sort of like just the five of, usually around five ladies. We call them five LTs, five lady painters. And we would hire a model, go to Jennifer's studio and paint and chat and, you know, um, and we were talking about like, God, it wouldn't be really great if we had like, there was some sort of school here, you know, we could hire artists to come teach for workshops and, and Denise is, she was like, yeah, let's do it. And then we looked at her like, what? What? What do you mean? (laughs) You know? She's like, okay, let's let's get it done. And so she's the one that started it. You know, she's the one that came with the whiteboard, you know, the idea board with post-it notes, vision, you know, vision board. Like, what do you see in the school? And we're like, oh, my God, this is happening. And so, yeah, um, Denise and, uh, is is really the the head cheese of, of Atelier Dojo, and we are the co-founders, and um, it's been great. And, you know, COVID kind of set us back a little bit, but then we took it online, and it was saved. And uh, so it's doing well. You know, we've been around for four years now. Yeah, brilliant. So, and Austin, Austin doesn't have anything like that. So we were like, let's make it happen. I mean, it's Austin. So, everybody wants to come to Austin, so. Okay, do they? Yeah, it's growing. It's crazy. It's insane. Oh, okay. Why yeah, do they want to go to Austin? South by Southwest. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I know that. ACL, Austin, you know, the the um, music festival. Um, we have tech companies, Tesla, all, you know, and food, all of, all the great things. It's a light. It was. It, started as the live music capital of Texas, and now it's everything. Yeah, right. So, Brilliant. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Galen Rabir again says, you, uh, your bio mentions that you have taken workshops from nationally renowned artists. Does a particular teacher stand out as being, as having been especially influential? Influential. Uh, have you had any mentors along the way? Haven't had any mentors really. I would say like Kwang Ho was 
huge and and um he he he, t- he teaches you somebody was saying this and it was a great description of his teaching practices is that he teaches you how to see you know right. so um there's one you know like you learn how to paint but he teaches you how to see and how to um find meaning in the work you do you know find the the mess and the beauty in that so um yeah probably second yeah (laughs) amanda lee jones in austin uh, says is there anything you regret doing or not doing regarding your artistic journey um I think the business side. I think um, there's a. I I got really. The business side of art is very very tricky. Um, Being with galleries and such, I've had great galleries, um, and then I've had some really um, dysfunctional relationships with galleries. And you know, granted. There, you, you can have dysfunction in artists as well as galleries. It's not, but I, I felt like I was in a situation where, um, I felt taken advantage of, you know, a lot of, everybody has this kind of story, um, and, um, somewhat abused, I would say, um, you know, as far as the work relationship. Um, so you have to be really careful. And you have to, uh, I didn't listen to my gut. And so that's one thing I would say to artists is that listen to your gut. Don't ignore it. If something feels wrong, listen to it. Yeah. So I would say that. Yeah. And they teach you how, well, you you learn how to paint, but you don't learn the business side. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I think they need to be teaching at these conferences, like how to protect yourself, how to how to do your business, how to do your you know uh, do your taxes, how to you know what are your rights, how do you negotiate, how do you um, you know all these things. Yeah, yeah. So any any conferences out there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> any group, I think yeah. that would be a really beneficial. Yeah. Um, Galen Rabiri again says, Karen, in your bio, it says that your father's an artist and your mother's a designer. You've already mm-hmm. mentioned that. As an artist raised by artists, what lessons, for better or worse, did you learn mm-hmm. from your parents about work-life balance? Well, um, my mom was more of the, um, she had more of the work ethic. Um, my dad had money from his parents, and um, so he didn't – I think he could have achieved a lot if he wanted to pursue it, but I think he had a lot of fear in in pursuing that. It didn't – it was something that his parents didn't think was a good option for a career, um, which is kind as of – As Yeah, as an artist, mm-hmm. um, which I can – I can see that happening, um, but with my mom, she was headstrong, workaholic, you know, getting stuff done, making things happen, 
and um, very practical. So I'm a little bit in between, <laughs> but I, I do have the work ethic. Um, and, but what she, you know, she wanted me to take over her business is what her dream was. And I thought, no way. I don't like needlepoint that much and I don't really care. And, uh, so I think that when, when I started painting on my own and learning how to paint, I didn't tell her. I didn't tell her I was going to take painting classes. I, I, this was my own thing that I was going to do on my own time. And eventually I told her and she was fine. And then, um, and then she went with me to, to deliver <clears throat> paintings to, she just didn't think it was a practical choice and, uh, as well. And, and I, she went with me to Houston to deliver some paintings to my, uh, gallery and Martha Meyer, who owns the gallery, um, she, she was talking me up and like, oh, aren't you so proud? She's been, she's doing so well, la la la. And so when we were driving back to Austin, my mom said, I think you're going to make it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So she turned the corner. But then she got, you know, oh, you're not, you're doing another nude? <laughs> you need to do more flowers. That's more practical. So, you know, <laughs> and then <laughs> negative motivation, you know. So. <laughs> that sounds like it was almost worse. Like now she had a lot to say about what you were doing rather than. <laughs> yeah. A, a yeah. blanket, oh. this is not going to work sort of position. Oh, yeah. But she, she, yeah, she just didn't have a filter, you know. She <laughs> I know she's she's proud of me, but she just you know when you're with your parents, they don't really share that. They just tell you they're your critics, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So, but I think Scandinavian people and you know the northern part of Europe, you know, because I've got a few um, friends, say from Holland or whatever, and they they're very direct. Like they, it's not mm-hmm. that under the filter. They're just like you know. What are you getting upset about? I'm just telling you what I, you know, it's just exactly as it is. I'm not, you know, I'm just saying. It's just you're doing it wrong. Yeah. You know. Listen to me. Right. I mean. I'm not saying you're fat. You just shouldn't wear stripes. Yeah. 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 Just do it the way I do it and you'd be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in Ireland, it's completely the opposite, you know. And I think um, oh. in the in the UK and England, it's it's similar. You know, everyone is will dance around. You know, they just don't want to offend anybody. And I think a bit of that yeah. has has gone across to America as well, where everybody's very careful about. Yeah. You know, the last thing they want to do is directly say something to you. <laughs> well, they say it. It's just not direct. You know, right. so like. Um, you know, if, if some, like in the South, bless your heart, you know, can mean many things and it could be an insult, <laughs> but you never know. It's kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth. So, yeah. 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 Um, if there's one underlying theme to all your work, what do you think it would be? Uh, uh, I think it's, 
just kind of a personal journey and a personal appreciation for things. You know, I um, when you when I when I leave here and I go see my aunt in Atlanta and I'm just amazed of all the things that she has that are amazing and beautiful and and so I don't get to see that kind of variety of antiques and and um books and flowers you know all those kinds of things and it's sort of like I'm I'm trying to capture that in my work and and uh bring things outside of my current world into my paintings and so I'm all, I'm very emotionally driven in that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Uh, Kevin on Instagram says, has Karen had any huge breakthroughs in the past couple of years? I love hearing how talented people still find new techniques that open up new possibilities. Um, yeah, I think... I think what it is, you know, and everybody's got a different story and, you know, now you got these young, bright people going to these ateliers all over the world and all the wonderful things that brings to people now that we didn't have back then. So, um, so you kind of had to figure it out on your own and being you know, having that judgment, like, you know, my mom, for example, kind of (laughs) like, oh, well, you have to keep it this way. You got to do it this way. And um, second guessing what I've done and always like, but, you know, in the past, and then now I'm coming to this point in my life where I feel very motivated and inspired and um, reasonably confident in what I do. so I think that, in a way, is, has given me a breakthrough. And um, I'm always looking for something to kind of try out, you know, a technique, a color, a, you know, like a high-chroma color painting as opposed to a real dark painting um, or, or deep painting. Um, I like playing – I like that freedom to explore. Um, and not be tied down. I want, I've always wanted to make sure that whatever I paint, you know, it's my painting, even if it, I want to paint horses because I love horses. I used to ride. Uh, I want to paint landscapes that are compelling. I want to paint people more. I want to, you know, so as long as everything is consistently, you know, that it's recognizable that it's my work, that's, that's the goal is to keep it yeah. consistent. Yeah, lovely. So, yeah. Galen Rubiera again says, do you mind sharing how much of your income comes from gallery work versus teaching? Um, if I taught, I, I think it's um, maybe more from galleries and selling on my own here. Um, make more with that. But I don't, if I taught more, I could make more obviously um but it's just a time thing it's like i want to put the time into my work and if i put more time into to teaching um then i have less time to work but but again 
you know, I'm only teaching at dojo once a week, you know, one, one class a week. Um, and I know I'm going to be doing some workshops soon now that we're getting kind of out of the quarantine. Um, so I want to kind of do that more as well, you know, yeah. do workshops. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of that really adds to the general income. So if you teach, it really does help fortify because <laughs> there's no guarantee. There's no salary. Um, and so you really have to kind of figure out ways to make money in a lot more fronts than just painting. If, unless, you know, you're like big time people who don't have to, but, um, I don't know. It's, it's always, it's always there. There are options. Yeah. Uh, Amanda Lee Jones again says, what's the best advice you've received that helped you in your career? Hmm. I think the best advice was to not show work that is not your best. So if you have some general kind of, you know, you have your paintings that you, you know, I still have paintings that I'm like, Ugh, you know, <laughs> that I would never show anybody. Yeah. And some of them are no longer around. So, uh, <laughs> but make sure you show your best work to the public, to galleries. Don't show just anything. Um and it could be a – you could have a great sketch that's beautiful, but don't get a sketch that's not – you know what I mean? Like, you want it clean and beautiful and with intention, and you want to show that. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ray Allen Parker on Patreon. Thanks for the tea, Ray. says, beautiful, vital portraits, Karen. Sometimes it seems very important – Sorry, sometimes it seems every important painter lives in either Brooklyn or London. As an Austin painter, how do you build slash maintain an inspired and recognized artistic practice outside one of the recognized cultural capitals? Um, well, uh, one of my oldest friends uh, lives in New York. One of my oldest, bestest friends from we met when we were eight years old. We used to ride horses together, um, and she lives in – she and her husband live in a church in Harlem now. She's lived all over New York, uh, Brooklyn, and Manhattan, and now she lives in Harlem in a church because her husband's a sexton. And uh, so I am so inspired by her. Uh, and I'm so inspired by my aunt who passed away because, again, that's that world. It's like getting out of your your regular zone. And then it's it's like when you go to – you just need to go to a museum and, and absorb, like, seeing, seeing good, solid work. And it just fills you. You know, it's like a little tune-up. It's like an, a creative internal tune-up. And so when I go to New York, I am we run the streets. 
We share wine in the graveyard at night. We go and see arts. Um, we walk on the Brooklyn Bridge. We eat, get good cocktails, and just we have the same kind of personality where we're just bouncing ideas off each other and talk, you know. She's been, she's uh, in one of my paintings that I made years ago where um, it was called Taking It All In. It was like a little 10 by 10. And she and I were in, uh, she was staying in Portugal for a year, um, just traveling around, not, not for a year, for, for a summer because she teaches. And she was traveling around Portugal and I met her in, um, in, uh, where were we? We went to, uh, Lisbon and then we took a train down to the Algarve region and stayed in bed and breakfast. And I took this picture of her and she's just looking at everything and it's like, oh my God, I got to paint that, you know? Yeah. And so she's a big inspiration. Um, so yeah. I'm always in touch with that. And that's that's why I have my props. That really helps me to to keep that motivation. Yeah. And what about the thing of you know, what he was asking about becoming a recognized artist if you're not in one of these, you know, London or Brooklyn kind of areas? Um, well, so the, there's different ways to get your work out there um it is to find these juried exhibitions um and uh you know if you're looking for galleries for example some of them you could walk in and say hey here's a painting <laughs> you know um i don't know what you or or they may have a submission form on their website you can ask you know there's so many ways to get your work out there and to um, connect with other artists now. I mean, I uh, because of Facebook, you know, when I would travel to Sweden, I met Alexander Klingspor, and we hung out and had dinner. Um, and then I met uh, Benjamin Bjorklund, and that was fascinating. Got to pet his horse. Or dog, <laughs> you know, he has those big, the big uh, Great Danes. Um, see his studio, and and so the social media and the and the internet has really changed everything. Instagram, um, get your work on Instagram. Find find those um, people who you admire and make connections. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Christopher Miles in London says, Hi, John. Thanks for doing these podcasts. You're welcome, Christopher. Or Christoph, sorry. I just got your name <laughs> wrong, Christoph. <laughs> I love your work, Karen. How many paintings do you make slash sell in a year? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, that's, I, I, uh, I don't even know. Um, I'll say this. The pandemic was pretty good. I got more sales during the pandemic yeah. than before it's yeah. really amazing and it, i think it yeah. yeah and i've talked to some galleries and they're like yeah it's it's been a great it's great for art you know um mm. it's really hard to say i think it depends you know like i'll have 
We have the East Austin Studio Tour here, the West Austin Studio Tour. I'm in the West Side, so basically it's two weekends of your you can apply for it. You open your doors, people come into your studio, buy directly from you. So you have like old sketches or, you know, boxes of different types of little uh, studies and such sell that you sell. And then you have like a big painting that you sell. So I haven't really counted it up. So, so less, yeah. less than 100 a year. Less than 100. Yeah. But yeah. Less I'm than not 50? that prolific. Huh? Less than 50 paintings a year? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it depends. <laughs> Less than um, 50, more than 10. <laughs> more than 10. Definitely more than 10. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Those are challenging questions. Never even thought of. What sort of price range are your paintings selling for these days? Um, oh... It could be from 500, you know, small study type things to 10,000, maybe more for the bigger kind of stuff okay. in between that range. Yeah. yeah. So okay. I sell through here. I sell on my own as well as through galleries. And when I sell on my own, I make sure that I'm the same price range as the galleries and make sure that they haven't bought my work at the galleries before. You know, I want to keep those relationships pretty solid. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a big yeah. art dream you'd like to achieve before you die? Hmm. Um, I... I think what it is is yeah I want to I want to paint in Europe um I I have all these paintings backlogged in my brain somewhere and I want to get them all done <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you know I want to I, I want to sell more I want to make more paintings um but I think I just never want to lose that that fire you know, I think yeah. that's what keeps us going, is that fire to to create. Yeah, yeah. Um, Amanda Lee Jones again says, what do you find most challenging as an artist? Time. Finding time to paint. I think Amanda Lee Jones needs to come over for a bottle of wine. <laughs> She's just <laughs> up the street, basically. And she she teaches children. She's a great teacher. Anybody who wants, you know, needs uh, wants their kids to take art classes need to go to her. She's amazing. She teaches classical realism and even the Munsell method and all this stuff. And I'm like, wow, yeah. <laughs> if you see her work, check it out because it's beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I did see it in passing just as I was getting the questions, but yeah, I'll, I'll look at it more closely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so time. That was the answer to our question, right? Yeah, just time to paint. That's yeah. the challenge. Yes. Okay, this is my last question then. Um, I asked okay. everyone who comes on the podcast. If there's one thing mm -hmm. you could pass on to future generations, what would it be? Well, 
So one was listen to your gut. The second one is if you don't love it, love it, you can't do it. I mean, you have to love what you do. As an artist, you have to love it. It can't be about getting famous and all that. That's a different thing. If you're wanting to be an artist, you have to love what you do. And uh, if it doesn't speak to you, you have to find something else because it just, it won't, things don't, it'll show in the work. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Fantastic. Yay. Okay. Well, it's been lovely chatting with you. Um, yes, you too. You're... <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I think your paintings are fantastic. I really do. And you're one oh, of the okay. few painters who have come close, I think, to um, being able to do what Sargent did, um, mm-hmm. to be able to convey so much with so little, um, certainly brushstroke-wise. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I don't know how you do it, but it's, what, it's like that person there, Benjamin, was asking about the now, is it, do you have a different style for men, different style for women? You really do seem to um, capture something. You, you, I think you said it as you, you want to try and capture their essence. I think you do that. You do that very well. And it's, there's not one thing I could kind of, you know, say, oh, here's how I, I think you do it. But you certainly do it. It's a combination of all the things we talked about, mm-hmm. both both technical and intent, um, in your intent in in how you go about it, you know. And Mm -hmm. one of the other things I really find inspiring about you is you're just mad for painting. Yeah. (laughs) It's lovely to, uh, you know, it just really comes across that, you know, if, um, you know, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, that Monty Python scene from, the Black Knight, where you know he's saying you cannot pass. You know the scene where he says you cannot pass, and uh, oh. <laughs> the guy cuts off yeah. his leg, and he's like, oh, "Well, that's it. Now I've won the duel." He says, "No, I haven't. That's just a flesh wound, you know." And he ends up like he's he's got no limbs, and he still wants to fight him. You know, you remind me yeah. a bit of that, and um, yeah. you know, even if you only had one finger, you'd still be like trying to make little paintings. Oh yeah, it, you know. Uh, <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, that's really Thank you. It's so it's so inspiring to sort of to feel you. that because um I mean we didn't go into it too much, but you've had so many challenges like with your you know, to stop you painting or that to make it difficult to paint and you've had so many things that other people would have said, Oh, you know what, I'm just gonna I'm I'm just gonna stop this because it's too hard and you just never have. Yeah. You just kept you've just kept going, you know, it's what you're saying about being on fire for us, you know, it really comes across. Yeah. And it's so yeah. it's so it's so lovely to meet anybody who is like that about anything. But mm-hmm. specifically because we're talking to you, it's so great mm-hmm. to sort of see that, you know, that you're just so so passionate about it. It's very good. It's kind of sobering okay. because it I think for me anyway, and I'd say for people listening, when you come across somebody like that, it makes you kind of go yeah, okay. <laughs> That's what a really passionate yeah. person is yeah. like. And where where am I on that scale? And you know, and what what excuses am I yeah. allowing to to dampen that spark a little bit? You know. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. and it's been just lovely oh, to hear okay. where you're coming from and what you're doing and what's behind your paintings and what your aspirations are. It's been lovely. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I'm so happy to be on this because I've been listening over the years to different podcasts or interviews that you've done. And so glad to be on board. (laughs) Thank you so much for, for inviting me. You're welcome. Okay, well, I keep in touch with everybody, so I'm sure we'll keep in touch. But, yeah, from for now, we'll say goodbye. All right. Toodaloo. Bye. Bye. I've never felt this good in my entire life. Make me some spaghetti. Actually, I'd prefer a cup of tea. <laughs> a cup of tea would be lovely. So, yeah, just a little reminder, mainly because... Every second or third person who becomes a patron has got in touch with me and said, you know what, I've been listening to your podcast for ages, and I didn't become a patron, not because I don't have the money, not because I don't think it's great, I just didn't get around to it. So this is a little friendly reminder that if you'd like to be a patron, you'd like to buy me a cup of tea, go to patreon.com forward slash John Dalton, gently does it, all one word, or follow the link in the show notes to become a patron. I would really appreciate it if you could do that, particularly if you've been meaning to and you just haven't got around to it. It would be great. It would mean a lot to me. All right. Thank you. Bye. Hello? <laughs> Hello. I can see you in the city. You want to stand up from the desk and have me fix it? Yeah. Uh, so, I'm sorry I can't hear you yet, but uh, I'll have my tech yeah, report. Hi, John. Hello, Stephen. You hear? You sound great now. It, it's very faint. Did you give me some audio, John? How are you? How's it going? Um, this is the way I would be normally speaking. I think you sound very normal, John. I do. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm pretty normal. I'm a pretty normal person. All right, fair enough. You want me to just uh, swap this over to Cornelia's ear and then? Um, All right. Uh, is there any acoustics or any echo or anything like that? No, no, it's fine. Okay, I just very asymmetrical because there's only on one ear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I won't do any stereo effects. No, <laughs> no echo. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Hang on, I'm just checking my at my end. Right, okay, well that's an unusual beginning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't normally have don't normally have tech support in in the middle of uh, at the at the beginning. So good, nice to have tech support. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. Okay, now, if you're listening, I'm uh, talking to Cornelia Herrens in Oslo in Norway. And uh, just to give you a time context for our conversation, for someone, if you're listening in the future, which, of course, everyone is. I don't know why I say that, but, of course, everyone's going to be listening in the future. Anyway, today is Wednesday, the 5th of May, 2021. So, it's very nice to meet you, Cornelia. (laughs) Nice to meet you, John. Um, now, we've had loads of questions come in on social media. No one asked a really important question, though. How do you feel about the Eurovision Song Contest, Cornelia? Uh, I checked out of that one. That is, uh, it kind of makes my stomach churn. 
Is that because you only won three times and we won, Ireland won seven times? That's nothing to do with that at all. Are you sure? Yes. I think, I think it has. <laughs> it has something to do with the sound frequency and uh, the content and the repetition. But, uh, ooh, yeah. <laughs> it's painful. But yeah. the movie with the European song uh, context, uh, context with, uh, not context, but contest, uh, oh, with the actor, I forget his name now, the comedian. Yeah, Will Ferrell. Yeah, Will yeah. Ferrell. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's really That good. is brilliant. I you, really enjoyed it. Did that. you like that? Yeah. 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 It's sort of all the best bits of Eurovision, I think, that movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> he extracted the that, positive aspects. Yeah, because to have to sit through the whole thing, it's a lot. <laughs> it's pretty, it is an assault. Mind you, um, I had forgotten that, um, what's his name, Alexander Ryback won. With fairy tale, which was a very catchy song yes. back in two thousand and whatever nine or something. I actually was watching that one when he won. Yeah, yes. my wife liked him a lot. Yes, he was very popular in Norway at the time. I yes. say he was. <laughs> um, okay, so that's probably why nobody asked that question. It's that's a great question. Well, no one's question. interested except me. I, who did I talk to? Um, Nick Alm in Sweden. Ask him the same question as well. No, not interested. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we, we had loads of questions, and we had almost as many people going, yay, hooray, and fantastic, can't wait to hear it. My favorite was a fan account for the Russian-American artist Nikolai Svechin that left 92 fire emojis. That was it. They didn't say anything else, just 92 fire emojis. Yeah. <laughs> in response to Cornelia Harris is going to be on the podcast. So. Oh, that's really cool. Thank you yeah. for all that. Yeah. MNT. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so we get into them. Uh, Fritz Kouris Kouris in the Philippines says, Hi, John and Cornelia. Uh, I'm from the Philippines. Who do you think is or are the best artist or artists of all time, dead or living? And then Arnie Henrik uh, Tondersen in Tromso, Norway. I'm probably pronouncing yeah. that wrong. Tromso? Is Tromsø. that right? Tromso? Yeah, it's okay. Okay, Tromsø. yeah, Tromso. Um, of the old, and, and uh, Arnie asks, of the old masters, who do you look to for inspiration? And do you copy old masters? Love your work. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for those questions. Those are great. Um, and it's a little bit tricky to answer, too, because when we look at the well of um, inspiration out there and the well of masterworks that has been created through art history, uh, it is impossible to point to a singular individual as this is the only sort of hallmark or the best hallmark. Because I think that there are... Uh, so many different expressions within the same language. If we talk about what a masterworks consists of, it is something that is skillfully executed, I think it should be, and it's something that you know speaks to the heart and to the soul and to the mind. And there may be different artists sort of in history that express those different aspects incredibly well. That can also be very different from each other. So if you look at Caravaggio, for example, and compare him to 
don't know, Rembrandt uh, or uh, Velasquez or Vermeer. Those have slightly different energies sort of embedded in their work with slightly different focus sometimes. But I, I can't say that of this group of painters, only one is the one to kind of look for. I think that we can look at them all for different aspects or for different solutions or for the different experiences. And that I think is also so much the, um, the point of art, isn't it? That it is a visual language in which we communicate ideas and thoughts and feelings. And um, in life, uh, which of course encompasses so many challenges and so many emotions and so many uh, sort of issues <laughs> in a way, um, reflecting on art as the source of, you know, reflecting on the human condition. Like we, we need a lot of different aspects, I think, in art to vocalize all the different aspects of what it means to be human. So that's a very roundabout way of just saying that when we discuss art and also art history and discuss inspiration, there are very few things that can be boiled down to one sentence or one solution because we are in the dimension of relativity. Could you repeat the question from Arne again? Yeah. Um. He says, of the old masters, who do you look to for inspiration, and do you copy old masters? Do you copy old masters? So, uh, in terms of inspiration, again, I look at uh, different artists, maybe at different times. Now, since I am also teaching a lot right now, there are certain concepts of drawing and painting that I find is particularly vocalized well, in so many, just in terms of the, the artists I just referenced here, of course, not history. But lately, I, I do look at a lot of turn-of-the-century artists, like, for example, uh, Sargent, De Lazlio, um, Zorn as well. So that kind of group of, of painters. Uh, so turn-of-the-century, 1800, 1900, I think that's a particularly interesting time period. Uh, also, perhaps because it is so close to our own time, and it still feels so extremely relevant. Uh, more so to me personally than, for example, uh, religious artwork, although there are sort of archetypical aspects and stories in religious artwork that I think, uh, you know, all people, including secular people, can relate to. So, uh, but I, I might look at Leonardo, one of his Madonnas, in terms of, you know, certain aspects, certain qualities of paint, but then I'd like to look at Sargent for other qualities of paint. So, yes, so in terms of looking at inspiration, it sort of, it depends on what is needed or what is required to kind of fuel up all that creative juices uh, or visual solutions um, at a certain time. Um, and, uh, oh, and I forgot the last question there again. Do you copy old masters? Yes. <laughs> Uh, so as a student, uh, yes, I did do that uh, sort of early on in my sort of student career. I haven't copied any masters in a really long time now, but I would really like to. So uh, I know I'm teaching uh, online, so I have my own uh, Patreon page. Uh, so I do a lot of uh, video tutorials for that. And I thought that it would be interesting to tap into old master uh, copies uh, studies again, because it is something that is quite profound in that process of studying uh, the work that has, you know, been done before, 
that through studying somebody's drawing or painting, you can really access their thought process, which is quite uh, astounding. It's almost metaphysical in a sense that one can, you know, through studying the solutions and the very specific brushwork, you really have to dig deep in order to um, analyze and speculate on the solutions so in a painting, much more so than if we're not just observing it. So when yeah. you're actually studying it, you have to think about what brushes do you see evidence of in the work, or how does this artist interpret shape design or structure and texture, and is color important, is it not so important? So there are just so many aspects to it that we can enjoy, of course, just looking at the artwork, but I think one dig deeper and one have the opportunity to internalize information uh, in a much more profound way by kind of going through the process of studying somebody's work. Uh, by doing it, by drawing or by painting it. Lovely. Um, okay, OM, that's all they put on Instagram. OM in New York says, if you could watch any artist from history working, who would you choose? That's a great question as well. And it also comes back to, if you ask me today, or maybe, maybe I'll say Rembrandt, just because I always wanted to see his, his work. There are some aspects to his work that I just don't understand <laughs> how it came to be and, <clears throat> and I think that when looking at some of his paintings too looking at them in person and comparing that to looking at reproductions of it the experience of that is so extremely different because his work is three-dimensional uh, there is a uh, light shining of some of his work that a reproduction so far has not been able to reproduce. And I think that it can only be a bit mystified. And that I think would be, I think I would love to see that. Like painting, when he was painting the Jewish bride, for example, how did he layer that? How did he layer that sleeve, uh, for example, creating such a transparency and sort of sculptural? <laughs> have you seen it in person? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah that's in the Rijksmuseum Museum in Amsterdam, is it? Yes, yes, correct. Yeah, yeah, I would have seen it, yeah. Yeah, but if you ask the same question on a different day, maybe I will, I'll have a different response. I would love to see how Sargent worked as well, or Wilmer Dewing, um, or uh, Emil Carlson as well. There's some textual solutions there that I, I would really like to know how he built up the painting as well. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, okay. For someone listening who hasn't seen your work, how would you describe your paintings and drawings? Uh, hmm, that's a great question. Um, I do have a... I have a representational uh, style, so I... I echo reality quite closely, and uh, I work with uh, still life paintings as well as portraiture. For a while, I also focus on mythological uh, themes. Uh, for example, uh, Pandora or um, the uh, Three Fates from uh, Nordic mythology. So that was a direction that I was uh, very interested in for a while. Um, currently, I focus on portraiture and uh, still life. And uh, what's important to me is to translate a sense of beauty uh, and a sense of um, 
an appreciation for for nature as well as translating a sense of feeling emotion i'd like the viewer to uh, feel feel something to feel compelled to communicate with my work whether it is a uh, realistic portrait or a uh, still life composition in terms of my still life i very often work with uh, sort of older objects i think that uh, an old rusty bucket for example can have a little bit more sort of personality embedded in it uh, as opposed okay. to I don't know CD covers <laughs> or sort of modern made uh, sort of objects. So I, I I gravitate towards objects that have been around for a while that have a little bit of personality and and a little bit of narrative almost embedded in the surface. Um, and so when I work with uh, still lives, there are sort of several different I guess subcategories that I find interesting. Sometimes I think about you know, that little moment in time or moment in a day or where you maybe, yeah, you have a chore, so maybe you have a bucket and <clears throat> some flowers, maybe some soap kind of in a corner, for example. Like that little fleeting moment um, is um, some aspect of that that I'd like to advance in, uh, in my select compositions. Other times I, I like to work with uh, a little bit of uh, juxtapositions. So, for example, in uh, one painting called the Tooth Fairy, she's holding a tooth in one hand and a coin in another hand, and so she's evaluating the value and the quality of the tooth. And there's something very disturbing, <laughs> I think, <laughs> about that in a way, because of course, as adults, especially, we, you know, the idea that we have a tooth fairy visiting is a little bit uh, disturbing, a bit scary. When you're a child, it's a very exciting thing. So there's something about uh, the yeah, juxtaposition of that sort of uh, feeling, in a way, that I sometimes like to include in my work as well. So something that is um, beautiful, peaceful, but maybe there's a bit of an undercurrent of something that's a little bit uncomfortable. All right. Yeah, I hadn't thought that about the, the tooth fairy it's kind of good that they stopped coming, actually. Yeah. <laughs> because if they were coming for adults, they'd probably get shot or <laughs> attacked. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Not in my uh, No. Um, okay, so how does the idea for a painting start for you? Do you have, like, how do you record your ideas? Are you have a sketchbook person? Do you make little thumbnails? Do you write? and make little voice memos? What what do you do? How does it all start for you? That's a great question as well. And I think it also ties in with what the sources of inspiration is, because that would be the origin of uh, creation and uh, kind of problem solving, I guess, which I think a part of inspiration is. So some inspiration, I think, is very immediate and very much in the forefront of the consciousness. Like, for example, when going to a museum, Hopefully that would be possible to do again. Or when going out to nature, kind of seeking inspiration somewhere, looking at something to kind of fuel up on color harmonies or texture. So that is one way to start that creative process. Uh, often I think that there's aspects to the creative process that can also linger in the subconscious, that one have a gravity or gravitational pull to a theme or to... Yeah, it could be a color theme or a, um, 
sort of visual theme or it could be an intellectual theme. Um, so sometimes we'll have a um, you know affinity towards a particular theme, uh, and that the, that can sometimes origin I think originate in the subconscious somewhere. Uh, so just the accumulation of one's uh, experiences, you know, can express itself sort of in that creative process uh, as well. But now uh, more sort of hands-on, I will work with a combination. Sometimes I will make uh, thumbnail sketches. Uh, sometimes uh, I'll record down uh, ideas as well. I think more often than not, there is a bit more of a, of a line-up of different ideas. And uh, I certainly experience I don't have the time to attend to them all. And I think probably that's a good thing. So I have a bit of a lineup of ideas. Some of them I might uh, attend to immediately. Uh, some may just linger a little bit in the back of my thoughts for, for a while, sometimes years, before I will bring them out and um, you know, bring them into the studio and actually make something of it. Um, and then I think there's quite a few ideas that will just sort of hang out there and linger and they will never sort of emerge into, onto a canvas or a drawing. But I think that there's still an important aspect of that uh, creative uh, process. Uh, certainly it can be really helpful to record those ideas in some way, just to hold on to them a little bit. Now, yeah. in the last couple of years, I have focused uh, so much on uh, portrait painting, also to uh, create portrait paintings for the, uh, the video tutorials. So with that, I've, I created a bit of a uh, folder as well, so just to create a bit of uh, different references and uh, different uh, sort of sketches and brainstorm uh, that in, in through like a digital folder. So that's just another you know venue or another tool that one can use to to collect those uh, thoughts. All right. So it sounds like it's always visual for you. You're not the sort of person who writes down like words and that's the, you know, I want to do a painting about that or, you know, other artists have said, you know, they might be out in nature and they have their phone with them and they'd make little voice memos. You don't do anything like that? No, uh, no voice memos. Um, in the past, I, I, I would write them down a little bit more, but I, okay. yeah, I haven't really kept that up so much. I'm, I'm more visual. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and do you work uh, from life or photos or a combination of both? That is a great question as well. Uh, I work with a combination of both. And uh, it, uh, it took some time post-graduating uh, from uh, Art Academy before I even permitted myself to adopt uh, photography as a tool. Um, and I think that in this... Um, uh, representational artwork uh, uh, bubble, there is uh, a lot of different opinions. Sometimes it gets pretty heated <laughs> uh, about whether we should use uh, photography or not. So I think that it is uh, important to have that discussion. Um, now, personally, I kind of went from being just puritanical in terms of just working from life and I do think that it is important to work from life just to know how to do that. But it is also possible to translate uh, images from photography and make it work. So I think this idea that photography bad, life good, is too simplified. And uh, if I may, <laughs> may dare to say too, I think that there are maybe three uh, main categories of artists in that regard, that you have 
artists who work from photographs who are clear about it, and artists who don't work from photographs, and then you'll have artists that say that they don't work from photographs, but will do. Um, so it's a really strange oh. thing because there's a lot of... <laughs> liars. <laughs> yeah. <Maybe> liars. <laughs> it's a bit of a taboo in certain circles. But I think, again, it's, um, it's important that we discuss how we can use it and where it's a potential, uh, I wouldn't say dangerous, but yeah, perils are. Um, for example, um, it can be so that we get a bit too caught up with this idea that the photography is the truth. Uh, and so if one work and photograph, one has to record absolutely everything. But I think that if one are working from life, one are used to working from life, one are accustomed to that selection process um, and understanding a little bit like how our eye observes nature. Like we will have a focal point, we will see information in our peripheral vision, and then we will translate accordingly. And it is possible to bring that mindset and that observation tool into working with photographs as well. And I yeah. think that's important. So we can maybe talk about how we can work with it rather than dismissing it uh, altogether. Because I do think that there are so many advantages to using it. And for, let's say, young artists out there who are also, um, you know, having great ideas that they, they don't explore because of limitations, uh, I, I think that's a shame. Or... Uh, artists that uh, say no to uh, portrait commissions, for example, because it's not practical to meet the person in life. Again, that's a little bit, um, that's, I think when the pendulum has swayed too far in the no direction, where it starts to sabotage people's process. Yeah, yeah. How long did, it, <laughs> how long was it before you allowed yourself to paint from photographs? That was a bit of a process, yeah. <laughs> That was definitely a bit of a process. Um, so I went to the Florence Academy of Art, graduated in uh, 2007, and then I was kept on as a principal instructor, and um, and I complete uh, sort of ended that um, journey in uh, 2020, um, and then moved to to Norway. Anyway, somewhere in there, probably a couple of years, I think, post graduation is when I had some ideas and I felt that well, I I'm stuck here, but you know, photography can help me solve it. And then you know, trying to kind of find a combination thereof, and that I think also um, kind of branched out into other directions of creativity in a way. For example combining photographic reference with imagination and also with painting from reality. So um, I painted this uh, sort of forest maiden, sort of, so these women out in nature, and it was practical to go out and have a photo shoot of, uh, of my uh, friend and model sort of in nature and then work with that as a, as a reference in addition to kind of the recollection of the, the forest scene that I had in mind. So it's an yeah. interesting way to kind of have the idea, have the vision, and when it is quite complex and complicated, uh, then I think it is uh, helpful to just see how one can solve that uh, idea. And if using photography is going to help um, to execute a, uh, a larger scene or a bit more of a complex uh, image, I think then, then why not? Um, in terms of my uh, still life painting process, I, I paint more from uh, life directly, just because I don't find any 
utility for working with uh, photography in that particular context. And I prefer working from life when I can, uh, just because it's, it's enjoyable to translate nature sort of from its three-dimensional form uh, into to a canvas. But absolutely, I will also incorporate photography whenever that's going to help uh, the process. All right. For your more um, fantastical or imaginative uh, pieces, do you do any anything on Photoshop, any compositing or manipulation for your source material? Uh, so that is something that is fairly new to me. And um, I inherently don't have a... Uh, uh, a grand, I never had an interest in uh, computers and gadgets, so I was really slow <laughs> on the uptake. I just got like a smartphone a few years ago, pretty much. But then it's been a bit of an exponential curve. I, I decided to change a bit how I spoke about myself or thought about myself. I would always say I'm not a computer person. And I'm, and I'm not a computer person. But everything I know about computers and technology and uh, digital tools is hard-earned <laughs> sort of <laughs> knowledge <laughs> uh, because I don't have that sort of natural, naturally. But since uh, working uh, online and teaching online, uh, I adopted Procreate as a visual component in uh, online okay. teaching. And I really love it. It's a fantastic program, I think, very intuitive. And um, so by having kind of been forced into that process a little bit, and I really do enjoy I have also started to incorporate it into my own uh, sort of visual uh, composition and, and brainstorms as well. So I haven't really gone full on in that direction, but I, I have just exploded a little bit. I can certainly see the utility for that, especially in larger, more ambitious works, absolutely. It would almost be silly not to uh, use that because it is a very practical uh, tool. Right, great. Yeah, do you use it as well? Uh, Procreate, I, yeah, I do. I don't use it much and I sort of, if I feel like, you know, I have a big expensive race car, you know, like a Porsche or something, and I drive down the road at about two miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. That's what I feel like when I'm using it. I, I feel like I'm just using a very small percentage of it, you know, because I see some of the things that people do on it, and it's amazing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm the same way in that regard. Um, I haven't used it, and I don't see myself using it for a sort of artistic exploration or endeavor. Um, but, of course, there are a lot of artists that do. I know there are digital yes. uh, artists who do fantastic work. And, uh, mm. and it's really, I think it's really interesting, too, to see that combination of uh, technology and uh, realism, you know, like that connection of the traditions of uh, classical realism you know, manifested in the digital uh, media as well. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think I use, uh, I don't use Photoshop, I use GIMP, which is the open source version of Photoshop. I use that a lot more creatively than uh, Procreate, because I find Procreate, to actually draw and paint on it just leaves me cold. I just, I'm not interested in that. I, I, do, I could do a few little things on it, mostly just what I need, but in terms of being creative and say if, I'm, if I have an idea, like what I was saying, and I have some different different elements that I want to composite together and move things around, I'll do, I'll do that on GIMP. I won't do it on Procreate. 
Hmm. I haven't tried GIMP actually. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 very similar, a bit, bit clunkier than Photoshop, but it's very similar. It does all the same things. Yeah. Um. Okay, so uh, OM in New York again says, do you ever sketch people or environments while outdoors? Oh, that is something I I would do more um, a few years ago. Yeah, so um, sort of being younger and uh, traveling into the cities and uh, museums, I would always have my sketchbook with me and... Um, and for instance, uh, sort of record thoughts or make thumbnail sketches or uh, make sketches of the environments uh, that I was in. But it's been a while since I really have explored that a lot. It's, I think that I, you know, through time you start to uh, funnel in on one's interest and also artistic focus. So I think through that kind of funneling, um, there's maybe certain expressions of uh, that creative process. Uh, that I found to be more um, beneficial for my process. So I don't, I don't tend to make a lot of sort of in situ sketches. Um, maybe with the exceptions of occasionally going out doing a landscape painting, but that's a little bit more of a, you know, put on the backpack and bring up this a bit more of a determined goal. <laughs> I think a bit more yeah. of a planned trip um, rather than having a, a sketchbook along. Yeah, it's a great idea though. Yeah. But not a lot of traveling these days. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, do you do color studies or value studies before you start your main kind of painting? Right. So that is something I always recommend my students to do, especially if they are tapping into a composition that they have a lot of questions about visually or compositionally or in terms of the colors or if they have some questions about which colors to use for a particular project then making a color value uh, study or composition study is a great idea. I love doing them myself and I've actually sort of taken a little bit of a loop here. When I was a student I loved doing them and then for a while there I kind of skipped through it but I kind of returned to <coughs> excuse me but I returned to adopting them again because I really do love the immediacy of those sketches and um, they're very satisfying to make also because it's a very fast and fluid process uh, whereas a uh, larger you know more challenging work or more of a let's say a life-size uh, portrait or select composition it's going to require a little bit more time so and I, I love that also kind of digging deeper into a particular composition but making a composition study is so valuable, especially if one has questions that pertains to anything to do with the composition itself. Uh, it's a great uh, you know, venue in which we can brainstorm the different aspects of the painting. And I think also um, something essential in that regard is that through the act of painting something, you also realize whether the, that you love it or if there should be something that can be tweaked. And again, it sort of ties in with, yes, you can see a lot, you can find a lot of answers just by observing the composition alone, but the litmus test is really going to be the act of painting. And so if one just have a little bit of a, a, sort of a testing ground before committing to a larger project, then that can be extremely helpful. So yes, I will make a composition study 
not for all the work that I do, but if I'm going to work with something I'm a little bit unfamiliar with or I'm a little bit hesitant, or sometimes I will just do it just for the pleasure of, uh, of painting a, a smaller sketch of a composition study. Yeah. Do you do a, a version of that for, you know, if you've got a big drawing in mind, would you do a smaller version of it for the same reasons? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, there is also something to be said for when you have a smaller uh, painting or drawing in your hand, you can also, just by holding it up to a larger canvas or painting, you can kind of position yourself and the sketch to the scale of the paper or the canvas to kind of convert that sketch into the larger format, if that makes sense. So just yeah. like mentally, you can translate that smaller image into a larger image and then see you know, how that works, um, how that would translate into a larger image. So absolutely, when working with something that is going to be a little bit more of a dedication, you really want to make sure that that composition is going to be excellent <laughs> and yeah. that it's not a haphazard because, you know, you want to honor that time and energy and dedication that you're pouring into uh, a larger work. Um, for sure. But there are maybe some smaller type of uh, drawings and, and paintings um, uh, that, uh, you know, you, you develop a familiarity with the process also. So there's, you know, certain uh, compositions where I just go straight into the painting immediately uh, just because I'm excited to kind of get into the <laughs> main works. And, you know, there's also something about that energy and momentum, I think, that one can also plays into uh, to a uh, drawing or painting. Uh, but again, if it is something that is going to have a, a, a larger scale or if it is a commission as well, then I think it is very helpful to, to go through that uh, sketch sketch or, yeah. or painting. Right. How about yourself? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> <laughs> have I ever done it? No. I think I work out a lot of that stuff. It depends on what kind of painting I'm doing. If I'm doing a painting that I've got a very clear idea in my head, yeah. then I will work out a lot of color values, composition, all that kind of stuff on GIMP or Photoshop beforehand. Yeah. Um, and then once I get that, so I have a pretty um, detailed kind of composite that I'll kind of work to then, or I'll kind of solve a lot of the problems that I you know, would have. So composition-wise, I'm pretty happy with it, and color-wise, I'd be happy. And then whatever happens when I'm painting, then that, that's different. Yes, right. Yeah, in terms of the translation of the brushwork and sort of the textual elements. Yeah, or, you know, the happy accidents that <laughs> occur. Yeah, there are no such things. Okay. There are no such things. I don't yeah. know. Um, I, I think it's, certainly it's not something that one can rely on uh, in, uh, in a visual uh, process. Yeah, I'd say probably 90 per I, what I what I end up with is 90% of what I had originally intended. But then sometimes when I'm painting something, it just won't, it'll look different and I'll have to figure that out. You know, it'll just look different to, to the original idea that I had. Okay. So... Yeah. yeah, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that, I think, can be a nice uh, aspect also to the creative process that um, one can kind of get oneself into sort of visual 
uh, quagmire, and then now one has to problem solve and uh, <clears throat> and figure things out visually. And that I think is a very exciting process as well, a really interesting way to to be creative. I think a big part of creativity, again, kind of coming back to that theme, is to do with problem solving, finding visual solutions. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the moment, I'm kind of going through a period of painting not so much, you know, having a clear idea and and painting that. Now I'm going through a period where I'm painting as a kind of process of exploration. So I have no idea what I'm going to do. I have a source. I have a, a I have a reference material, but it's it would be something a photograph that I've taken. It's just something to trigger me, and then I'll start from there, and then I often end up very far from there. So it's a it's a different kind of process again, but yeah. but very much exciting in that way that you're talking about. Hmm. Um, Maureen O'Mahony here in Ireland, in Kerry actually, where I live, says, love your work. Um, I'd, I'd just love to hear what you paint on. Um, she's talking about substrates there. All right, yes. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so I work with a combination of uh, supports. Um, when working in a slightly larger scale, I I do think it's uh, I think canvas is always going to have <laughs> have a role, and I'm st- I'm say I'm starting that uh, answer by kind of starting that direction, uh, and I can maybe go back to that a little bit. But I paint on uh, linen canvas, uh, sometimes I pen- paint on panel, and when I work in a smaller scale, I will very often paint on a uh, canvas that is adhered to the panel, because that's sort of the optimum support. Um, it um, will uh, prevent the canvas from buckling up or warping a little bit, uh, which can sometimes be an issue. And it will also uh, solidify the the painting and sort of protect it a bit from potential damages and injuries and sort of punch, punches. Um, and I think that's also important when uh, shifting uh, artwork to, to exhibitions uh, and galleries. So... Yeah, when I started out painting, it was only on uh, canvas, and then uh, there's sort of been, I think, a bit of a movement in terms of uh, art materials and painting supports in the last few years. Uh, so there's been a lot of uh, sort of support in the direction of uh, adhering canvas uh, to to panels or to uh, dye bond, which is a, sort of a aluminum uh, composite uh, material. Uh, mm-hmm. But I actually do prefer the I prefer the look of um, uh, of uh, birchwood still. Uh, so one of my uh, favorite um, uh, panel makers is this uh, company in uh, uh, in the states called the New Traditions uh, Art Panels, and so they are like a family-run company, um, and they adhere linen onto brushwood panel and create a bit of a varnish at the back of it to prevent it from warping, etc. So that's sort of what I, yeah, kind of funneled in on uh, after doing a lot of exploration because the materials is, I think, especially important uh, when pursuing art in a professional capacity because, of course, you're selling your artwork and you need to uh, you know, work with the with you know the best materials that that you can afford. Um, but then, of course, uh, there's <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. we also have to accept that uh, maybe the paintings are not going to hang around for a thousand of years, thousands of years, unless somebody really takes care of them. 
So yeah, just to wrap it up, I paint on canvas. When I work with larger sizes, I work with uh, linen on uh, panel when working in a smaller scale. I also like to paint on copper occasionally. So when working okay. in a really small scale, almost a bit of a miniature, then copper can be really beautiful. Uh, when working on copper, it's important that it is fairly stable as well. So it's, that's why I also work with relatively small uh, size when working on uh, copper. All right. Do you, um, if you're going to um, glue the canvas down to the panel, if you were doing that yourself, what do you use to glue it down? Uh, so what the glue you should use then, if you're doing it yourself, is a um, acid-free or acid-buffered glue. So uh, there is this uh, PVA glue, uh, polyvinyl acetate glue. Uh, that also comes in different qualities, so it is also important to do the research to, to just make sure that it is a good quality and that it is uh, pH buffered, so it's not going to turn rancid over time, uh, potentially injuring the, uh, the canvas. Uh, there's also Restore's glue out there, and if you heard about the Beva glue, for example, that is heat activated. Yeah. So it exists as a film, and you can iron the canvas onto a board. Now, I have done a little yeah. bit of that myself, but I, I will say that buying it from somebody who has a vacuum press, <laughs> it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So because it, if it's really not uh, a good pressure in the gluing process, sometimes it's uh, unfortunately too easy to peel off the linen from the panel. So that's oh. why I, I just prefer to... Uh, to purchase it from a source that kind of goes through that process uh, until maybe one day I'll get my own vacuum press. What do you think, Don? Yeah, exactly. Uh, panels at the moment, little small panels, 12 by 12 at the moment. And yeah. I, I guess of them a lot because I don't really like the hardness of them. So that's how I kind of get over the, you know, when you were saying about putting the canvas on, and you didn't say about giving it tooth, but it does give it tooth. Um, mm. Whereas uh, it just panels on their own are a bit too shiny for me, but when I gesso them up, it just sort of adds enough texture to make it okay <laughs> for yeah. me. But I, I do plan to do to um, for larger panels if I ever get around to doing larger panels to 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 uh, glue the canvas down. So that's good. Good tips. Yes. The polyvinyl acid glue, PVA. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alyssa Alexanian, hope I got that right, um, and her Instagram name is Chant of the Night River, which is lovely. Yeah, that's says, uh, Isn't it? Yeah, I thought that was very lovely. Um, she says, thank you for the opportunity to ask questions. Uh, then she says, ground. <laughs> Without a question mark, but it's a question. Cool, uh, colored, warm, cool, or no colored ground? So hang on, let me ask that again. So it says it's ground, colored, warm, cool, or no colored ground? Does that make sense? So whether uh, to paint on a, um, without any imprimatura or any stain on the canvas, uh, yeah. working directly on the white canvas or working with a stain on the canvas. I do a bit of both, uh, actually. Um, there are pros and cons to both. Working with a stain already on the canvas helps to 
soften it a little bit, but more importantly, it helps to give you that initial range of values to work off from. So let's say if you have a stain or a color on the canvas in Italian, that's called intermittura, that corresponds with a kind of mid to light half tone in a portrait, for example, or in some area of the composition, then you already have advanced the painting without even drawing anything on it through allowing the canvas to echo some value component in your composition. And then you can both go darker and lighter uh, as you block in the, the process. So having the stain on the canvas can really affect especially the early moments uh, of the painting process. So when uh, working on the uh, white canvas or without any stain to it, it initially will look a little bit disconnected until you have everything covered. And sometimes that can be a great driving force uh, in the underpainting process as well. Uh, but one just has to acknowledge what the value destination is as one are indicating the first uh, initial brush strokes because everything is probably going to look a little bit jarring in the context of a white canvas. But again, it can be a great uh, impetus to cover it uh, with a little bit more energy uh, in that initial painting session. Um, I think also it's important to not go too dark with the intermittent because that also is going to reduce a little bit the sense of uh, light or the, the light reflective index, what it is referred to. So the sense that there is a little bit of luminosity and almost uh, that can also happen uh, so in that initial layer, that you get a little bit more of a, a sense of light kind of traveling from the canvas, which it actually does, because you have a little bit of light traveling into the surface of the paint, and then that travels out again. So you get a little bit of a kind of glowing <laughs> effect maybe in that first initial layer. So if you want to preserve some amount of that, then working on a white ground can be an advantage. Otherwise, I think it's really great to explore what the Imprimatura can do uh, because it can really help to effectivize the early stages of the underpainting process. Right. Yeah. Do you ever... Sorry, had you finished? Uh, no, I was just going to say that I, uh, uh, in terms of cool and warm, um, with uh, painting a portrait or a figure, it is practical with a fairly warm intramatura. So usually working with a raw umber, just spreading it very thinly on the canvas is going to give you that kind of warm temperature that will correspond quite closely uh, with, you know, the light shape um, of most complexions. Um, but I once painted my nephew on a, a green intramatura. <laughs> And it really affected uh, the uh, uh, the first layer of the color and the value. So it really looks just seasick because everything was just influenced <laughs> by that. And it was sort of tinted green. Uh, so that wasn't very successful. But uh, maybe in a, a landscape uh, painting or a, uh, you know, a composition that contained a little bit more green, you know, that could be an appropriate uh, color for the intermittent. Yeah. Right. Do you ever work into it? Meaning, um, some artists they sort of they put the in, uh, the ground down and then they'll cut back into it with the cloth or something like that and almost begin painting in the by with removing the 
paint, if you know what I mean, or the ground. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite ways, actually, of blocking in a composition. It's extremely satisfying because when you have a imprimatura that, let's say, corresponds quite closely with a uh, with a light shape or maybe with a bit of a mid-tone on a portrait, let's say, and then you cover the canvas with that, and in the same moment or same painting session, start to rub away, you start to reveal a bit of that light shape within that overall darker mass you immediately get the light shape going and you work kind of from that uh, into a little bit more uh, structure and position and then you kind of find the drawing. But it's a wonderful way to start out, especially if you have a composition that is quite atmospheric uh, and where you have a strong design to the light shape. It's very satisfying to, to go about the process uh, in that way. And then you can use uh, different uh, tools to kind of reduce the paint with or to remove the paint where you don't want it. So using a, um, a fabric a fabric or textile that's really effective because it's not going to get really linty. Paper towels can quickly turn to linty and you're just going to get all of that on the painting. So uh, therefore use uh, just worn uh, textile. Cotton is great. Uh, Q-tips you can also work with. So that's also one of my mm. favorite combinations there because you can use it as a really effective drawing tool just by removing paint uh, where you want to reveal a bit of that light shape. And you can even uh, work with it so that you get a bit of a gradient of value going. Um, and you can also use a barbecue skewer, let's say, to draw into that with paint where you want to have some nice crisp lines. So it's a very flexible stage of the painting, um, and it can also be a very satisfying way to, for example, work in a monochromatic uh, underpainting strategy, uh, where the focus is on establishing just a proportion and some key um, values that represent the you know, uh, composition in terms of mass. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. I'll ask you that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay. So when you're starting to, you know, you you put the ground down, do you do a grisaille or anything like a grisaille, or do you just get on with the main? Yeah, color? so there, there, I think this is great questions, by the way. These are great questions, because there are so many ways. Again, when we talk about the dimension of art, we talk about, we are in the dimension of relativity. And I think that is true for talking about elements in art history or sources of inspiration. And certainly when it comes to the process of building a, uh, a painting, you know, that journey can open in so many different directions. So sometimes I will work with the ground, sometimes not. Sometimes I will let the intermittent dry. Sometimes I'll work directly into it. Uh, and work with the monochromatic underpainting. Um, sometimes, I don't do it so much now, but I, I do really, or have kind of in the past, enjoyed going through the grisaille underpainting stage as well. Uh, but more so, these days, I go a little bit more into the painting process with a direct painting technique. Uh, and that means that, you know, you have to juggle color value while you're searching for the drawing. But through being quite familiar with that process, you know, through time, won't have the confidence to juggle more ingredients simultaneously without them falling to the ground or, you know, creating a chaos on the canvas. But if you're just starting out the painting process, I think familiarizing yourself with how paints behave by, for example, work with a grisaille, because in a grisaille, you, you can work with 
a little bit of temperature, but you have, and you can focus on value. And then you have pretty much the absence of color. And that can enable a greater degree of focus on uh, finding the structural foundation of a painting uh, and, you know, translating the foundation of the drawing, shape, design, colors, and values. But uh, overall, my, my training and my practice is very much centered around a direct painting process. And so that means that I, I will tend to find my colors and my values and then work with juggling those components in the pursuit of translating the drawing. Right. Very good. <laughs> um, okay, Kathleen Clark on uh, Patreon. Thanks for the tea, Kathleen. For all the tea, because Kathleen buys me four cups of tea a month. And, you know, if you're listening, you can do that too, you know. <laughs> you don't just have to buy one. <laughs> so if you can't afford to send me anything for the podcast, Kathleen is sending some tea to me on your behalf and for two other people which I think is beautiful. So, hooray for Kathleen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, so Kathleen says, uh, Hello, Cornelia. Uh, I just saw images of a still-life triptych you painted in beautiful grey with some bits of neutral colours. I'd love to hear you talk about the mixing of subtle greys and what pigments you use, how you think about temperature, light, and the empty space of a painting. I will listen for 19 hours at least. Thank you both for your time. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're going to go for 19 <laughs> hours, but Kathleen is a long haul. 18 <laughs> and a half to go. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Catherine. Um, and yes, there are many, many hours, if you, if you do want to listen uh, in on that, uh, on my Patreon page. I have hours of uh, tutorials there, uh, if, uh, if that's uh, interesting. Uh, so, yeah, and thank you so much uh, about uh, your appreciation for that uh, triptych as well. That was uh, something that I set up and painted, worked on a few years ago now, I forget, maybe it was 2018, something like that. And so that particular composition, I set up each painting in mind uh, that each painting should work on its own, so as an individual. But then I also wanted it to be composed so that the three paintings could work either as a, as a couple or with all three of them arranged. And then wow. in addition to that, I, when I composed each painting, I also thought about how would it work if it was, if it swatched uh, or switched places so that mm. it should work from sort of any perspective. So that was a great challenge and I really loved that uh, project as well. So when you see the three of them together, there is a, um, one of the paintings have a little bit more of a, a larger form as presented with this bowl. And then um, there is one of the paintings, yeah, it's over there, uh, that has more ribbons and uh, like a sister in it as well. So it has some smaller spools with the ribbons and twine as well as uh, some lace ribbon as well. So when I composed that particular triptych, I thought that I, I wanted to have the backdrop of those softer gray uh, with slight element of sage, just a little bit hint of green. So there's actually a lot of temperature and a lot of color in gray, of course, uh, but allowing a little bit of that blue, a little bit of that purple, a little bit of that green to kind of shimmer through in areas. But overall, the background is pretty neutralized. But then there are the three primary colors in each, or represented in each of these uh, paintings. There is some element of blue, yellow, and um, 
uh, what's the third one? <laughs> Red. Yeah, kind of neutralized sort of softly uh, in each of these uh, paintings. Uh, so that was, there was a lot of thought that went into that. Probably I spent a good two days in just arranging the ribbons in one of these compositions alone. Uh, I remember just standing there for hours, just like moving the ribbon, stepping back, looking at it. No, it's not quite right. Moving, so absolutely, <laughs> kind of uh, obsessed about finding that sort of right combination of shapes. So everything is very thought out, but I also want it to look very organic and very natural and a little bit random, randomly composed. But everything is really thought out in terms of which forms are overlapping each other, which are freestanding, as a way to create a very dynamic harmony in each composition and also in all three of them as it sort of ties together. Um, yeah, so in terms of the palette on uh, these uh, compositions, I forget exactly which colors that I use, but I will always have a black and a white, and usually I will have a earth color like a raw umber. Sometimes I will have a burnt umber instead if there's a lot of red uh, sort of earth colors in the composition. But for this one, I think I would have had a raw umber. Um, I usually gravitate towards uh, cobalt blue instead of ultramarine blue because I prefer the faster drawing characteristics of cobalt blue. I also like that it is a little bit more opaque, but sometimes ultramarine is, is a more suitable choice if I need to go a little bit darker, uh, let's say, in an area. Um, but for this one, I think I used a, would have used a, a cobalt blue and um, probably a alizarin crimson because uh, I, I just can't live without it. It's a beautiful uh, dark red, <laughs> has a lot of transparency, of course, and so I, I often will combine alizarin crimson and raw umber for my shadow shape colors or for the darkest moments in the composition. And then I will start to go a little bit lighter by either increasing the ratio of red uh, and then start to increase a little bit of yellow before I start to, to bring in any amount of white. So usually I will avoid having any white in the shadow shape. Exceptions apply, of course. So ivory black, alizarin crimson, cobalt blue, and uh, yellow ochre. I really love um, blue ridge yellow ochre by, um, uh, yeah, by natural pigments. So okay. I don't know if you can get a hold of them in uh, in Ireland. I don't know even about in Europe, but they are. Uh, you can get hold of them in uh, in the states. So blue ridge yellow ochre. It's just a really nice, colorful, uh, natural uh, ochre. And uh, I probably would have used a cadmium, maybe a couple of cadmium yellows as well for this composition in order to express a little bit of the, uh, the yellow color saturation uh, on the ribbons. So I think I would have used a pretty extended palette with two, three yellow, two, three red, and then cobalt blue and ivory black umber and white um, so that I can vocalize all of the color components in the composition. So I, I tend to work with a pretty, uh, in my opinion, sort of complex palette uh, in that regard yeah. because I, I like to be able to translate all the colors uh, almost verbatim as I can see them in nature. That being said, I do think that it is great to also exercise working with a more of a limited palette. And there's just so much that we can do in terms of color combinations on the palette. I think this is extremely exciting just because I love colors <laughs> so much. Um, and that also means that I really do like uh, subdued, softer, more neutralized colors also. 
as well as more chromatic and vibrant color, like all colors I think are great. Um, so um, this was a pretty extended palette, but working with something like a limited earth palette or a limited chromatic palette, you know, there's just so many color combinations I think are, are really exciting. So, so I will change my palette actually quite a bit according to the composition at hand. So I will not have my standard colors out there. I will allow them to, to vary a bit depending on the color expression of the composition. But for this triptych, I would have used the same palette in order to secure a color consistency kind of traveling through all of these compositions. Uh, that's brilliant. That's a great answer. Um, except uh, the question I have is about your white. What white do you like? Oh, yeah, that's that's a great question also <laughs> because I, um, I'm a little bit like Goldilocks there, I think. Like I, I even sometimes <laughs> will mix different kinds of whites together to kind of, you know, create the characteristics that I, that I favor. Um, and I'm, I, I haven't landed on a, a, a favorite brand, but I do use lead white when I paint okay. because lead white is faster drawing. Also, in terms of uh, its archivability, it's, it stays more flexible. So it is one of those pigments that will endure, uh, you know, historically uh, longer <coughs> in, uh, in comparison to some other pigments as well. So pigments and the strength is an important aspect of kind of building a, a reasonable, sort of strong painting that can kind of stand the test of time a little bit. So I like to use um, uh, lead white. I'm a little bit concerned about that aspect in Europe because lead white is, I don't know if it's impossible to get hold of. So I, I just shipped some from, from the States or when I moved from the States. Um, maybe one day, you know, we'll, I'll be forced to working with titanium white. That would be my second option if I couldn't work with uh, lead white. I also think it's important here to say that if, for somebody who may just be starting out painting in oil or are painting in oil for their own pleasure, they're not selling it, for example, or, you know, painting uh, with children and pets around or wanting to create a sort of fairly non-toxic palette, then my recommendation is paint with titanium white. There's no reason why you should work with lead white in that yeah. situation. So again, it's just relative to to what what our needs are, and what's the most important aspects kind of for us in the painting process. Lead white, of course, is toxic, and I think it's really important to be mindful of that. So if you are a messy painter, and you have and you kind of put your paintbrushes on your apron, <laughs> the way to cleaning them, like that's that's uh, super messy. You know, don't don't paint with uh, lead white or genuine vermilion, just because it's going to crumble into particles, dust particles, and you're going to inhale them. So just uh, uh, you know, choose pigments according to your painting practice as well. Very good. Yeah. How about yourself? How is it in Ireland? There is it. Uh, to get hold with of that? Uh, lead white, I've never tried, so I don't know. Um, okay. <laughs> I'd imagine it's the same as what it's like in uh, Norway. Okay, so yeah. you work with titanium so white? Titanium white, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it is something that you get used to a bit. It is a bit like driving a car, you know. You you get used to its particular behavior and, um, and how you have to temper it or combine it with other colors 
to reach a, uh, a sort of desired color and value. So, you know, titanium white is far more opaque. So that means that you probably have to use a larger quota of other colors to uh, obtain the same color translation uh, in comparison to lead white that is a little bit, it's not transparent, but translucent maybe. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Rohan Dathankar in India. I hope I got your surname right there, Rohan. Uh, he says, talking to you, Cornelia, you have a very particular way of mixing color using a uh, palette knife. It improved my work drastically. I want to ask, where did you learn this process of mixing in a single pool of paint and obtaining desired shades? I think this way, I think this is way better than brush mixing. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much, Ron. Um, so... Uh, this kind of going back a little bit to my own artistic training here. So I had a palette knife probably a few years before I knew what it was for. <laughs> this is confessions of an artist. Um, so when I started painting in oil, I was maybe about 17, 16, 17, thereabouts. And so for many years, of course, everything I knew, it was just through self-discovery and exploration and uh, experimentation. And so my first paintings were only relying on brush mixing as well. And I remember painting this painting one time and realizing that it was like one area that I wanted to change slightly a transition or some color component. And then just thinking, oh, no, I have to paint everything because everything has to be blended together. <laughs> so just starting from like one side, painting across the canvas, and it's terribly ineffective. Um, realizing that one can actually work with a palette knife on the palette and find a particular color value mixtures there, uh, and then even identify, you know, with 100% or, you know, a really close proximity to what's already on the canvas. Not only is this a great system just to organize the colors and the values from starting out the painting process, but it is also essential if one are going to work with preceding layers so that one can create a color and value consistency as one are working with a painting through several layers, for example. So that uh, helped enormously, finding, figuring out what the palette knife was for. And uh, so that is something that I learned um, a bit uh, through my artistic training at the Florence Academy of Art. So that was enormously helpful in terms of you know, not having to reinvent the wheel, you know, oneself, but basically having uh, tried and tested information and, uh, uh, you know, tools, tools of the trade uh, already laid out uh, just to kind of pick up and start implementing into one's own uh, process. Um, yeah, so I'm glad that you find uh, that really helpful, Rohan, uh, to, to work with a palette knife. And, yeah, it, it just it effectivizes uh, the painting process uh, tremendously uh, so that one don't have to create a color from scratch using the brush. I will sometimes admittedly brush mix if I'm working on a color sketch or on a really small study where I'm able to keep everything active kind of and flowing in one painting session. But when working with something that requires a bit more precision, uh, a portrait that is a little bit larger or that is going to be reworked in several layers, then organizing the palette is it's so well worth the effort. 
Yeah. I also took a uh, color class uh, at one point that also uh, taught me some, um, some some sensational sort of color theory as well. And so, the, you know, a lot of the mixing process for me prior to that was intuitive. I knew that yellow and blue would make green, you know, from childhood. Uh, but, you know, really getting familiar with just the nuance of color, uh, ultimately we'll just have to pour in the hours you know, in and just repeat that process through to mixing colors. There's there's no other way around it, to my knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever do? Um, I'm just when you were talking there, it reminded me of uh, Will St. John was saying that, um, as well as doing all that, what he does is he will uh, get a tiny little droplet of paint on a on the end of a brush, and he'll sort of dab it in and just kind of mix it in on the canvas and that that gives a sort of vibrancy to his paintings, according to him anyway. But just yeah. uh, when you were saying that, it reminded me of us. Did you ever do anything like that? Yeah, in a way. So just during the painting process, it's such a uh, you know fluid journey, quite literally. Uh, you have to have paint flowing <laughs> in order to have something to work with. And there are several different approaches here. Uh, you know, some painters are, are very good at placing a specific brushstrokes and then painting the next brushstroke over. I tend to paint a little bit more into the previous paint layers. So I work with a little bit more of an overlapping brush technique or painting wet and wet. So if I'm working with a portrait, for example, I'll maybe work with the larger planes first to kind of mask that up in, and then I'll paint into that. Uh, so, for example, adjusting the color and the value and the chroma, you know, as I'm searching for the particular shapes along the way. So, you know, in terms of mixing the palette, like it doesn't have to be uh, super formulaic. Um, mm. Finding the overall color value, yes, that's super important. But it doesn't have to be like 100%, you know, 10% of this color, 2%. Like, it's not like that. It's not numeric certainly not in my mind, it's just purely visual. So if it looks like the same color and the value, even if it may consist of slightly different proportions, that, that, that doesn't matter. As long as it visually kind of creates a continuation uh, throughout the painting process, that's what matters. But also, during the painting process, I will absolutely brush tweak. So if I find that I ended up being a little bit too warm or a little bit too cool or, you know, it needs to be adjusted in some way in an area, then I will paint into that, uh, you know, with continuous brushstrokes to, to adjust it. Um, and uh, also, there can be a bit of a difference between how we observe colors and values when it's on the palette to when it's in the painting. So the ultimate test for the color and the value is to place it on the canvas or the support that you are, are working on to see how that color and value is going to read within the established context, let's say, if you're continuing working with something. So I'll also do that. I'll have a little bit of a color on my brush. I will maybe tap it or put it very close to the painting uh, so that I can see how it kind of works. If I'm starting out, let's say, a new painting process and I haven't activated the paint already. So in those situations, I will uh, find a very proximate mixture. Like if I need to fine tune an area and I don't want to work with everything from scratch, then you know, finding a particular color value, uh, mixing it on the palette, placing a little bit of a dab on that um, on the canvas just to see how it uh, ties in with the with the context uh, before kind of getting to work. 
What I will often do also is that when starting the painting process, I will place the mixtures on the side of the canvas. So I'll have it right next to the composition so that I'll, whether I'm working from photo or from life, I can see exactly the color and value identity of that mixture as it compares to nature. So that's a really effective way to also just make sure that the color and the value resonates with the composition. Another really helpful observation tool then is that you can kind of move around and see a little bit like where that edge of the canvas and how it corresponds to the composition. And you can basically allow that color that you just mixed overlap a given area of your composition. And you can see if it's a match or if it's crazy. <laughs> and you yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. I also really love to uh, observe color and value through a visual isolation tool. So even just like having like, you know, two little circles like that, you can, you know, block the canvas or block your composition and your painting just to uh, compare a color and a value in a given area. It's also a really effective way of observing color yeah. and value. What, what do you mean with the holding your finger up? Like, how do you, how do, you do that? You, yeah, you look so, through it? Yeah, yeah. You have to kind of stretch out your hand <laughs> because this doesn't work, but you have to hold out your hand. Yeah. If you have, like, one circle in front of your painting or the given area in your painting that you, let's say, are, are mixing for, and then the corresponding uh, circle on your composition, then you can basically see the color and the value uh, in a, from a one-to-one -one perspective. Even better okay. is if you, excuse me, if you cut out like two little, uh, little windows, like if you have just a piece of paper about this size, about the size of the CD cover, and you uh, cut a bit of a hole in it about the size of your little you know, thumbnail, um, mm -hmm. then you can stretch that out and hold one in front of your painting, one in front of your composition. And what this does is basically taking a color and value component out of context so you can compare it to a neutral ground, which would be the color of the, the cardstock or the paper that you're using. Yeah, yeah. And this ties together with that with how we see color and value is also so relative that sometimes we can kind of get thrown off by the context in, in a given area. So sometimes what happens, for example, if we're working on a underpainting on a very light ground, 